This is Dennis McNally, and you're listening to a Pantheon podcast. Keep on trucking. Hey guys, today we have on the legendary Val Garay. Now, as a Grammy-winning producer and engineer, Val has done some unforgettable work with the who's who of the music industry, including Linda Ronstadt, Kim Carnes, The Motels, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, Ringo Starr. I could go on and on. But in this episode, we'll discuss the making of some iconic albums, like Ronstadt's Heart Like a Wheel, like James Taylor's JT, and Kim Carnes' Mistaken Identity. But we're also going to talk about Val's remarkable story of moving to L.A. as a musician and signing to Ode Records with Lou Adler. And we'll definitely talk about the cast of well-known characters he encountered along the way. So Val has had a remarkable journey, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about it all. Let's get started. Val, so great to have you on My Rock Moment today. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Glad to be here. You are a legendary producer. You're an engineer. You have multiple Grammys. Do you have five or six at this point? Five. Incredible. Over 100 gold and platinum records, an Emmy nomination. I'm going to keep going. And 125 million worldwide record sales. How's that for an intro? It's, uh, you know, I, I don't think about it. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it's like I was on a, a burn, so. <laughs> no kidding. What, no what kidding. can I say, you know? Well, I want to get into all of it, but I want to actually go back. Yep. You grew up north in the San Francisco area, but you um, were on a very different road up there. <laughs> <laughs> Music wasn't necessarily, you know, in your, uh, in your uh, path, so to speak. Well, I mean, it was and it wasn't, and I'll explain that. My father was a singer and an actor his whole life. Mm. So I was around musicians and music all the time. Anytime I spent time with my father, whether it was on the road or, you know, at his nightclub in San Francisco or whatever, I was constantly around people that were making music, including my father. And when I was a teenager, I always used to listen to the radio and say, hey, Pop, you got to learn this song or you got to learn that song because, you know, he had a nightclub act. And, you know, I, I also my my father's brother, my uncle, was an accomplished guitarist and had a trio that played all over the Bay Area for 50 years. And, you know, he taught me at a young age how to play guitar. So I was I was addicted to music and guitar and that kind of stuff when I was a teenager. But, it, 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 you know, when I'd go anywhere with my father, who was, you know, in his own world, a big star. I mean, he starred in the third movie Walt Disney did. He'd starred in, a, you know, 30 films. Uh, people knew who he was in the Bay Area where I lived. So, like, if he'd send me a check for my birthday, I'd go down to the bank, you know, in Burlingame, California, where I grew up and you know, on Broadway and go to the Bank of America to cast a check. And 
people would go, God, do you know him? (laughs) Yeah, it's my father, you know. And so, you know, I I had to deal with that growing up a lot. And and anytime I went anywhere with him, people would always say, oh, what's your son going to do? You know, is he going to be a big Mm -hmm. singer? And and my father would go, no, he's going to be a doctor. So that kind of planted that whole seed way back when. Didn't even give you the option of potentially wanting to go into music. Didn't want me to go into music, you know, because it's such a tough life. You know, I mean, you know, he struggled. He was very fortunate that he, you know, got the kind of success that he got and made a lot of money is, you know, in the periods of time when people were, you know, struggling, really. Um, he owned the biggest nightclub in San Francisco for years. He, you know, he just did really well. And he was an amazing, amazing looking guy. This is a photograph of my mother and father when they were first married. Oh, my gosh. Oh, they're both beautiful. Oh, yeah. My mother was gorgeous. Oh, I'm sorry. The listeners can't see this. She is gorgeous. And so when I got out of high school and decided that, you know, I had to figure out what to do. And I got a scholarship, Mm. the Stanford School of Medicine. And in my High school years, I was always playing in bands, you know, country bands mainly where we were in garages because we were afraid people think we were weird playing country music (laughs) and never in the public, public eye. I actually met a cocktail waitress who I started dating and she worked in a nightclub in San Mateo and and um, I used to go, you know, hang out there. And when they would close at two in the morning, she was there till four in the morning, you know, cleaning up and washing glasses and doing all that stuff. And I became friends with the guys in the band and, and they knew that I played guitar. And so we started talking about, well, maybe you'd come sit in with us sometimes. So I started doing that. And, and medical school. And it, well, that, that started to decrease in the eight o'clock lab, lab classes started getting missed. Cause I'd be leaving at 4 AM, you know, and okay. it just, it just took a turn and that's wow. what happened. And you decided, all right, this is worth, you know, not listening to my father for. This is worth pursuing. I'm going to take a chance. Well, it, and it was in the Beatles era, right when the Beatles broke. Yeah, there you go. So when the Beatles broke, you know, it was just a magical time. You know, if you had long hair and you were playing a guitar, you were in a good you know, position and you didn't have to make a lot of money. You just had to be there. And that's kind of where it started, you know, for me. Heading down to Los Angeles, was this on a wing on a prayer or did you have anything set up in this town? Oh, no. Here, I I put a band together in Northern California and played in that band for two years all over the Bay Area, the Teenage Fair, all these venues. And when the band broke up because I got tired of having to be the guy do everything, you know, book the gigs and mm. make sure that the songs were done right. And, you know, I, I, you know, had to do everything in that respect. So uh, I started playing in another band down in San Jose. And one day my friend Ron Dudley said to me, I'm going to LA. You want to go with me? And I said, sure. So I got in the car and rode down there and never left. That was it. That was it. Suitcase and a guitar. And I was in Los Angeles. And then I knew a lot of people there that had just recently moved from Northern California down there. And 
it's funny because I was just online on Facebook the other day with a guy named Jeff Hawk, who was in a band in the sixties in Los Angeles. And he actually slept on the floor of the house that I was living in, in oh. Laurel Canyon. And we were reminiscing about the band that was the people that originally um, rented the house. And they're actually releasing a record all these years later from the music from that band from 1965 or six, uh, they were called the sons of Adam. They were a big local LA band that never broke nationally. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was talking to him about how I said, you know, it was funny because when I finally ended up, got a bedroom in that house, cause it was a three bedroom house and you had to wait till somebody left before you got a bedroom. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise you were on the couch Oh, and 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 I said to him, you know, it's funny. I remember when the band from San Diego moved up and they slept on the living room floor for six months. And that band was the Iron Butterfly. Come on. Yeah. Swear to God. Weren't they like only 16 years old, too? I mean, No, they were probably in, you know, 20, 21. Oh, they were a little older at this point. Because you had Sons of Adam and then you had Iron Butterfly in this house with you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, it was their house. They had me in there. I they got to stay. I, I was looking for a place to crash. You know, that's what you did in those days. You know, you go crash at somebody's house and stayed there for six months, you know. Musical beds. Yeah. I mean, Laurel Canyon was such um, a hotbed of creativity and talent. And it seemed well, everything, like everything. I mean, you know, Richie Fure, whose record I just did, he lived down the street from me right on Laurel Canyon Boulevard. And and then I moved from that house down to Formosa Street between Fountain and Sunset in an apartment building that next door to me was Dickie Davis, who was the road manager for the Buffalo Springfield and Neil Young. They lived together in that house in that apartment downstairs. And I was in the one upstairs. Yeah. Was that by chance? Uh, no, because Dickie told me there was an apartment available and that's how I ended up in that building. And when you were in Laurel Canyon, that was your first meeting, so to speak with uh, Richie Fure at that time. Um, no, I met Richie down on Formosa street when I moved oh, down oh. the hill. Yeah. Oh, okay. When you moved down that way, gosh, that's a relationship I want to talk about later on too, because yeah. We have to we have to talk about all that you just did with Richie. And, you know, I had Richie on the show and everything. So it's definitely worth mentioning. Um, yeah. But while you were down here, I know you said you had somehow hooked up with Lou Adler. I'd love to know how working with Lou Adler was, because I'm thinking to myself, you're, you know, young musician coming to Los Angeles. There's no better person. Correct me if I'm wrong to hook up with. No, <laughs> he, he was the. He was the king of producers in Los Angeles at the time. He just he just finished, you know, with the Mamas and Papas first big album. And he had just started uh, actually their first two albums. And he just started Ode Records, which at that point in the beginning was distributed by Columbia, mm -hmm. Columbia Records. It, later, he moved it over to A&M, like Carol King's record was on Ode. But that was through A&M. And so was Cheech and Chong. But the early stuff was all through Columbia Records. And it's an interesting story. I decided I wanted to put a group together. And I heard about a guitar player who was really amazing, who was playing in a nightclub over in Glendale. So I went over to Glendale 
and met him and said, listen, I want to start a band. Would you like to be part of it? He said, sure. So then I said, okay, now we need to find a girl singer because every band had a guy and a girl in it, just the way it was at that point in time. Hmm. So a friend of mine who was a wannabe manager told me about this girl singer out in Simi Valley. So I went out to her garage and she you know, auditioned for me. And I said, you're in. She was great. Her name was Patty Phillips and she had an incredible voice. And then there was a kid from Northern California who I had worked with in bands in Northern California. And I'd actually helped him make a demo in his garage in San Bruno of a song that he wrote because he wanted to send it to Paul Revere and the Raiders because he thought it'd be a perfect song for them. And he sent the song down to Los Angeles to their manager, who at the time he was a famous disc jockey out of Seattle. I can't remember his name. And so, um, he sent a letter back saying they loved the song, but they'd have to rewrite it. And they wanted half the writing a share of the song and all the publishing. So Rick said fine and let it go at that. What was interesting is Rick did this really stylized vocal when we made the demo. And, and when the record came out, the song was called just like me, which was the Raiders first hit. Yeah. And, and they copied Rick's vocal identically. They didn't change a word. It was just a rip off, but he Aww. got a big, 50% of a big hit. So anyway, so I'd known Rick <laughs> since since those days and he moved to LA and he was a bass player. So I asked him if he wanted to be the bass player in the band. So he said, sure. So now we have everybody but a drummer and Patty started having an affair with this guy named Eddie Ho, who at the time was the best drummer in Los Angeles. He played for the Mamas and Papas. He played for the Modern Folk Quartet. He played for all these famous people. And so she kind of hoodwinked him into the band. <laughs> And because of him playing with the mamas and papas, he knew Lou. Okay. So he went to Lou and told Lou about this band and how good it was. And so Lou asked to hear a demo. So then that's what turned into the whole insane nightmare. <laughs> so I went to a guy named Pat Vegas, who was the half of a duo named Pat and Lolly Vegas. And they played in a club on Sunset. Uh, on Saturday night from midnight to 6 a.m. every weekend where they'd have a jam session and Sonny and Cher would come in and the Righteous Brothers would come in, all these people. And they went on to start a band called Redbone. Redbone. And they had a big hit called Come and Get Your Love. Oh, yeah. So I went to Pat's apartment at like, you know, 8.30 in the morning with this guy who brought me in from uh, who I met in Los Angeles Charlie Garcia, and he took me in to meet Pat, and Pat said, well, let me hear the song. So I played him the song, played it with my guitar and sang it, and he goes, yeah, it's a good song. Let me put this on tape. So he had a tape recorder right there. So we recorded it. So then I said to him later, I went back to him, and I said, we need to get money to make a demo because Lou Adler wants to hear this band. He says, okay, let me let me see if I can raise the money. So he comes back to me and says, I've raised the money. Let's go to the studio down on Melrose and you guys can cut it. So I went and asked my friend Lee Michaels, who had a big hit solo career, to play uh, harpsichord because he was an organist. And all these famous players, Eddie played drums and we made the demo. And unbeknownst to me, he'd gotten the money to do this from a guy who owned a label that re uh, he used to do KRLA 21 solid rocks, which means they put out an album of 21 big hits. And then they put out another album of 21 big hits. So we're already hits. It was kind of like a reissue label. So he got the money to make the demo from him, which I didn't know. I thought Pat put up the money. 
So we we took the demo to Lou, and Lou said, I love it. I'll sign you guys right now. So he signs us to the label. We go to the studio where he made all those hits. It was called Western Studio 3, and we walk in to, to record our single, and there was the wrecking group. <sighs> and we were like, you're kidding. <laughs> so the wrecking crew played the track to our single, we ended up singing on it. Eddie got to play a woodblock, which Eddie was, you know, an incredible drummer. I mean, so is Hal Blaine at the time. But, yeah. But we didn't get to play on our own record. So that's the way Lou did his stuff. So CBS puts the single out. It It's all over the radio. And this guy from Take Six puts the demo out the same day on his label and sues Lou Adler. Good Lord. Yeah. Right. So you didn't use the word nightmare lightly. No. So it killed the record. And and oh. Pat Vegas, he took half the writer's share and all the publishing. And he never wrote a note. <laughs> that just kills me. Yeah. Well, that's just, you know, how it was back then. That was the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And at, at that point, did you call it quits? No. In terms of being in you? No. Mm-mm. No. Then I then I got, you know, when that whole thing ended. I banged around for a while and uh, got a, a job as a staff songwriter for uh, Warner Tamerlane. And then um, my friend Ron Elliott, who I'd known since you know San Francisco days, he had started a band called the Bo Brummels, which had a bunch of big hits that Ron wrote. Ron wrote the songs. He wrote Laugh, Laugh and Just uh-huh. a Little So I had another friend at the time named Keith Barber, who had a big hit as a solo artist in 1969 called Echo Park. Yep. On Epic. So I went to Ron, uh, to Keith and said, listen, let's start a band. You be the lead singer. We'll get Elliot to write the songs. And then we got three other people to join. And we had a five piece band that was incredible. And so I said, let's get a manager. So I, I went to this guy who everyone was telling me I should see. His name was Abe Hawk. And Abe ended up being a huge theatrical agent years later. But he managed us and them. And he went to Clive and played him the demos that we'd made um, at the Sound Factory. And Clive said, I love the band. I want to sign him. And he signed us. And what Abe's year was this? This was 1971. Wow, 1971. Yeah. So we put the record out and the day it came out, the single was again, the single all over the radio. Elliot had written all the songs. The single was called Lady Honey. It was a great track, great record. The record, the album, the band was called Pan, P-A-N. You can still find the record. You can still find the single on YouTube. And the day it came out, Clive got fired. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he got fired for spending $27,000 of the label's money on his son's bar mitzvah. Yeah. $27,000. Yeah. So he got fired and therefore we kind of didn't get the support we needed. And so then that kind of fell apart. And then that's when I, having done that record at the Sound Factory with Dave Hassinger, he said to me one day in passing, he goes, you know, you got a great pair of ears. Why don't you come to work for me? And I went, okay, it's not a bad idea. Unbeknownst to me, I was going to work for $100 a week and working 20 hours a day. But um, I took the job. And then it all started from that, you know, the sound factory. 
Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview. So at that point, you decided that you were ready to step away from being, being an a, artist, being yeah. an artist. Yeah. yeah. But I do have to ask you, what did it feel like? What was that moment? You know, when you heard your song on the radio, it must have been euphoric. We were driving down Sunset, Patty. Myself and Eddie Ho and his Pontiac, I'll never forget it. We're going just past Sunset and Doheny at four in the morning, headed towards the beach. We all wanted to go to the beach and see the sunrise. 
and the record came on the radio and I thought Eddie was going to hit about four parked cars, <laughs> but it, it was like a moment I'll never forget. You know? Yeah. On what was the station? It was on KFWB, B. Okay. Mitchell Reed. <laughs> it was crazy. But you were willing to step away from all of that and you wound up um, working with Dave, Dave Hassinger at the Sound Factory. Yeah. For 20 or what, 100 bucks a week, you said 20 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to fall asleep on the couch in front of the recording console and the cleaning lady would wake me up at eight in the morning because I, I was too tired to drive back to Laurel Canyon where I lived. You know? so you just and, and, and Terry, the girl who was the studio manager who booked all the time, she would call me like on a Sunday morning to tell me what I had for the following week. And I'd answer the phone and I go, Sound Factory. She go, Val, you're home. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of which, you know, Sound Factory really is where you found your home. You found your calling. Yeah. You started working with David and he was really the catalyst in terms of exposing you to engineering and how good you were. Well, he, I mean, he saw it. I had no clue, but he saw it in the beginning and he you know, was the best in the business at the time. I mean, the guy was incredible. I mean, everybody thought all the Rolling Stones hits were done in England. They were all done at RCA Studios in Hollywood, where he was the staff engineer. Under my thumb, Satisfaction, 19th Nervous Breakdown, Get Off My Cloud, all those great iconic Stone songs. Passenger recorded. He recorded the first two Jefferson Airplane albums. He did the wow. first three Grateful Dead albums. He did Sam Cooke. He did The Monkees, Last Train to Clarksville. I mean, this guy. And what's really bizarre is he won a Grammy for engineering, and he won it for the Chipmunks, <laughs> Alvin and whatever they were, because he created those voices somehow, which, you know, in those days, you had to really be creative to make things sound different, you know? They were a wonder. I even remember listening to uh, their Well, I mean, I'll give, you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of how you had to create stuff. When I worked with Seals and Croft and we were doing Summer Breeze, I don't know if you remember the intro or not, but it's this thing that goes dong, dong, ding, dong, dong. Oh, yes. and, and it's this funny little clinky sound. Well, Jimmy had a little girl and she had a piano, one of those little pianos that's this big. And I said, well, why don't you try playing it on that? I'll record that. And then I'll go out and I'll put gaffer's tape on the strings on the regular Steinway and we'll double it with that. And then Louis Shelton doubled it with guitar and that's that sound. But Get that's the kind of, out. yeah, that's the kind of things you used to have to do to create stuff, you know? Now I'm always going to yeah. think about that when I hear it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, that was my first number one hit. That was your first Summer Breeze. Yeah. Well, you were really learning from the best then or one of Oh the my God. Oh my God. He was I mean, clearly, I mean, the guy was the genius in terms of sound and, and, you know, and he was, he was a very sharing guy. I mean, he, he, he was uh, really interesting because I would say to him, you know, can we go in the studio tonight when we're done at like midnight and I want to play you some stuff. I want you to tell me what you think, how they got the sound. And I do that with him like a lot. And he'd say, well, I think they did this and they did that. And that's sort of how I developed my sound from learning from him, how the sounds that were being made at that time, you know, the sounds of the day, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, how, you know, and, and when you try to learn how to copy things, you don't really copy them because you, you're not 
you can't. It's just you create your own somehow that way. And he was really the one that exposed you to people like Peter Asher. Well, that whole thing was uh, was completely an accident in the sense he was he was about 55 years old when Peter Asher came to him and said, I want you to record Linda's new record. Because he he'd done one track or two tracks on the album before that that wasn't successful. And so now they were getting ready to make a new record and she wanted him to produce it. So they came to Dave to be the guy to do it. He was like at a point in his life where he just didn't want to be in the studio anymore. So he kept pawning them off on me saying, hey, this is the new hot kid. Work with him and see how it goes and I'll be back tomorrow. And he did this for like two weeks till Peter finally called him up one day on the phone and said, hey, we love this kid. We'll, you can stay home. <laughs> and then we did that album, Heart Like a Wheel, which was the iconic, you know, beginning of her big career and and the beginning of mine, really. I mean, the sense that, uh, you know, from that, I mean, it was just platinum record after platinum record. It was crazy. So Heart Like a Wheel was really the first album without any of his influence, so to speak. This was more all you. Uh, his input was like, the night we mixed You're No Good, we started at seven o'clock at night to do a rough mix. And it's about six in the morning, we finished it. Wow. And he came in around eight, we were just dying to play it for him. Yeah. And we played it for him and he goes, that's as good as it gets. So at that point, I knew we were onto something and um, I knew that we were headed in the right direction. You know? Yeah, and, you, you knew it was going to be a hit. Oh, yeah. And, and what's really funny is when we played it, she was signed to Asylum yeah. at that point. But the way she got out of her deal at Capitol was she had agreed at any point in time they could claim a record of hers. So Al Corey got wind of this record, who was the head of A&R for Capital, and he called Peter up and said, I want to come over and hear some of the tracks, you know, with the possibility of Capital claiming that album. Oh. And so, she, you know, he, he came over and we played him stuff, and he went back and claimed the record. That's why that, that Harlequin Wheels on Capital, and then the next album, Prisoner in Disguise, and Hasten Down the Wind, and all the rest are all on Asylum. Mm. Was the number one album, two number one singles. <laughs> no, no, it was an, inc I mean, incredible, incredible album. I've been walked by the rain, driven by the snow, I'm drunk and dirty. Don't you know, but I'm still. How was it working with Linda? You know, she was a hard worker. You yeah. know, she did her homework. She did, you know, what she needed to do to make it happen. And it was just a great time and a great team of people all going, you know, pushing in the same direction. You know? 
The only time it ever got difficult with her, and it didn't really get difficult, it got a little odd, and and Peter handled it really well, was when she decided she wanted to do a punk record. And we did this album called Mad Love. She went to Peter and said, I think we need to change the team. I think we need to get different engineers, different, maybe even a different producer. You won't produce it because you're managing me, whatever. And he convinced her that staying with the same people, they could make any kind of record. And we did. We did Mad Love, which was completely diverse from anything she'd done before. She was the master of that, though. I mean, yeah. just changing direction. Yeah, you know, sure. I uh, posted something a few days ago on social media about Linda and her version of Willin' on Heart Like a Wheel, because it's a cover of a Little Feet song, you know, Little, yeah. George, Little George had yeah. written. And the reaction I got, I mean, it was just that moment that everybody was going back in time to the first time that they heard that album, the first time they heard that song. And it really, really struck a chord with all of my followers. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I knew Lowell really well then. And I actually worked on his solo record with Van Dyke Parks at the Sound Factory um, before he passed away. But um, the interesting thing was we had a song, a Buddy Holly song, That'll Be the Day, that we had cut on that album. And I mixed it like three times and it never sounded right. So Peter said, let's get rid of it and we'll do it again another time. And we went in and cut in one day, When Will I Be Loved? Which Al Corey, when he heard You're No Good and When Will I Be Loved? He said, that's going to be a bigger hit than You're No Good, which you know didn't set well with me because You're No Good was a masterpiece. Masterpiece. You know? Yeah. But it was, it was a bigger hit. But, uh, and then we cut, that'll be the day uh, a year later. And that was on Prisoner in Disguise. That'll be the day is a great song. But I think, um, you know, you're no good too when <laughs> you're a woman growing up and you're going through the trials and tribulations of uh, of love and breakup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it becomes an anthem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a few songs, you know, that that women latch onto. Maybe Alanis Morissette, "You Ought to Know," and some of those other yeah. just great, iconic, timeless songs. James Taylor is another one that I know that you worked very closely with. You worked on the JT album. Yeah, that's the first record I did with him. But I I think, you know, and I love James and I love his music, but I think it's the best record he ever made. You know, I mean, Mm. it's just unbelievable. Honey, Don't Leave L.A. and Smiling Face. And, you know, Handyman was just an iconic song. You know, that he just and it's funny, too, because when we were cutting the record, Peter and I were sitting in the control room and he and Danny Korsmar were sitting in the vocal booth uh, playing. just kind of, you know, the two jamming a little bit. And they started to play that song and he started singing it. And we both heard it and went, oh, my God, that's a hit. And we were running out and said, we got to cut this. And James went, I'm not doing another fucking oldie. (laughs) And then there you go. He's eating his words. Yeah, well, Uh happily, I'm sure. But, Happily. you know, 
it's just amazing the way he plays guitar and how he can stylize anything that sounds like his song, you know, which he right. did. And then the harmony stuff is all Leah Kunkel, which at the time was Russ Kunkel's wife, who is the sister of Cass Elliot. That's right. Of the Mamas and Papas. And Leah had a great voice because I produced her solo record in uh, 1978 or something with Russ. I did a solo record with her for Columbia Records. Yeah. But Leah, incredible voice. How was working with James at that time, too? I mean, I know. Exciting. <laughs> That's a great, that's a diplomatic word there. <laughs> Exciting, yeah. I can imagine there was never a dull moment. He he's he was a bit of a character at the time. Might well, I'll tell you a very funny story. So we're doing this song on flag and it's called Brother Trucker. And it's about truckers. And so he said, one no, I said to him, why don't we record some some truck tire sounds? and use it somehow in the background. He said, what a great idea. So we went up on the five and I had a boom, a shotgun mic, and we were in a, a limo with the window down and I'd be aiming it at the tires recording. And these truckers would see us with the microphone and slow down and pull off the side of the road because they thought we were with the, you know, the EPA people trying to say the trucks were too loud or something, you know, so they would freak out. And James would be out hanging out the window going, no, James Taylor, we want to record, you know, brother truck. That was probably the highlight of their. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they didn't know. They didn't know who he was. None of them. It was oh, funny. He was an unknown. Oh, my God. Well, he got the sound. We never did anything. We never could get him to, to drive where we could record it. They would just see us with the mic out the window and pull over. The things never you have made, to do. Yeah, never made it happen. But it was a great idea. I mean, you're talking about these albums here. You were one of those that was very much responsible for creating the California sound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, from 1975 to 1985, I mean, between Linda and James and Jackson Brown, I did The Pretender with him in the did motels you? and Kim Carnes and Betty Davis Eyes and all that stuff in that period of time. Orleans, I did still the one with them. Love that song. Andrew Gold, you know, Lonely Boy, um, mm -hmm. uh, Four Seasons, December 63, Oh, What a Night. All those records in that period of time were like, you know, part of the California sound at that time. You know, They certainly were. But yeah. at that point or during that time as well, you had left and you had started record one, right? Well, that was... <laughs> It was unfortunate what happened and the reason for that. But um, yeah, I went and built record one uh, because I wanted to have a place where I could work and not be, you know, kowtowed to other people and other people's thoughts and process. So I went to my lawyer at the time, John Frankenheimer, and I said, I, I want to build a studio. And so, well, let me see what I can do in terms of raising the money. And 
Lo and behold, he came up about six months later with Mel Simon, who was one of the richest men in the world, who Simon and Associates, they're in, out of Indianapolis and they still own the Indiana Pacers. And Mel started out as a door-to-door -door salesman for Encyclopedia and he ended up being a billionaire and he wanted to be in Hollywood and he wanted to be involved. So he became my partner in record one and very quiet too. We had two meetings a year. That was it. Oh, wow. He just lets you do your thing. Yeah. And it, and the place made a ton of money. I mean, it, from the day it opened and then, you know, I was open for six months and then Greg Ladani started hounding me because he was working at the sound factory still where I had taught him and he wanted to come to record one because it was the new hot place. And so then, so then I ended up having to book studio time around the city because he would book the studio out and I couldn't get in my own studio. So then, <laughs> so then I decided to build the room in the back, the other room. And, you know, that's how that happened. Because this was like 1980, 1979. When you... 1980s when it opened. 1980s when it opened. And then fun fact, three, I think you've mentioned three out of the five years running, the Grammy Award for Record of the Year was produced at that studio. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> when you think of how many studios there are in the world. And yeah. the three, so what was it? I remember it was Boys of Summer, right? Yeah. Rosanna by Toto. Right. And Betty Davis. And then Eyes. Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. Yeah. Yeah. Two of the two of the three won. And the third was one of the five nominations, which was Boys of Summer. They lost to, if you can believe this, which should never have been allowed. They lost to We Are the World. Now, you know, you can't have a record with 30 artists that's done for a charity be eligible. And I don't know how they did that, you know, because the Boys of Summer was the record of the year for, for my money, you know, but they lost. But there was all three were nominated and two of the three won. Two of the three won. And Betty Davis' Eyes was like the biggest single ever produced, right? Well, no, it was the fifth biggest single ever produced. Oh, I was off. <laughs> the biggest single ever produced at that time was Heartbreak Hotel, Don't Be Cruel by Elvis. Okay. All right. Yeah, I guess you can't really stand it, up to it Elvis. Sta it stayed at number one in the Billboard charts for 26 weeks. Wow. That Betty doesn't Davis, surprise me, though. Betty Davis' Eyes was only number one for... 14, I think. 14 weeks. Wow. I mean, that that record, come on, or Mistaken yeah. Identity, the album. Yeah, that album was a, an iconic record. One of the few that I made in my career. You know, Heart Like a Wheel. Uh, I still think Prisoner in Disguise was an iconic record. I think that Simple Dreams was an iconic record. I think that JT was an iconic record. And I think that was an iconic record. But Betty Davis Eyes is what gave you your first Grammy, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been nominated before that. Uh, I got nominated for a James Taylor um, and Linda Ronstadt record for Best Engineering. But because I was nominated for two of the five in the category, uh, I had two nominations to the five possible the vote kind of got split and Steely Dan won for Best Engineering. Oh. But I almost feel like that that's another moment that is similar to hearing your song on the radio for the first time, right? Yeah. Walking up there. Do you even remember 
walking up. To oh, I, I, re- I remember everything. You know, it's, what's funny is, first of all, I didn't even know that I got nominated. My friend, uh, Eddie, who I went over to his apartment, he lived on on Woodman. And I went to his apartment to, ha- to go have lunch with him one day. And he said, you know, you got nominated for a Grammy. And I went, what? And it was in the LA Times. And I didn't even know. No one said anything to you. No. Well, this was the day the nominations came out. The day the nominations came out. So you get a letter later and you get all the things, you know, that the, they send you, which I have in a big um, book of stuff that has all the nominations. in. It. But, you know, you, you, you know, you remember it. And the thing that was interesting when I went to the Grammys that year, that was 1970. That was 1977. Hmm. The Grammys were held, I'm trying to think of the name of the venue. It's on Sunset near Gower. Um, the Palladium. Oh, the Palladium. Oh, okay. And they weren't even televised. Wow. 77? Yeah. You'd yeah. think they would be. They weren't. Trust huh. me, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, tele- not televised. But the actual Grammy itself came, and that was, what, 1981? The 1981 yeah. Grammys. And and to win the record of the year, that's the hardest one to win. You know, it, and the reason I didn't win the album of the year is because John Lennon got killed. So I read a story about that. Okay, so it was very, it was very strange. Political. It was very political, you know, because really Betty Davis Eyes and, and Mistaken Identity were, you know, a, a much bigger record than, you know, the John Lennon record. I think that I, I seem to remember reading somewhere that the moment or the day that you guys went into the studio was the day. No, no, we were rehearsing everything at Leeds rehearsal studios in North Hollywood. Cause we wanted to do this record kind of like live mm-hmm. without, without doing overdubs. We wanted everybody to play and her to sing live. So we've been rehearsing all the songs and the night we started rehearsing Betty Davis eyes is the night he was murdered. That's too bad. Yeah, because I remember getting a. Uh, we're in the rehearsal studio. It was about six o'clock at night. Maybe it was earlier. No, it was like one in the afternoon. And somebody came running and said, John Lennon's just been shot. So I called Carl or Carly, as you know her, Simon. And because uh, she lived in the building next to the Dakota with James. And I called Carl and said, what's going on? She said, I don't know. There's a million ambulances and police and all kinds of stuff outside the Dakota. So she didn't know. And that had to have been such a blow to the entire community. Yeah. I mean, what a loss. What a waste. What a waste. You know, 40 years old. I mean, but that guy, I mean, come on. Because he wouldn't autograph an album. I know. Yeah, it, that's not the reason I think that guy really had the intention all, all along of doing what he did. But yeah, yeah. it's such a waste. And and John Lennon just, you know, as a person, having evolved as a person, I think would have been such a wonderful guy to have around spreading his message. But I know that the timing was a, a bit interesting. And so he ended up winning album of the year. And it may have been more due to the fact that there was just overwhelming. Yeah, support. yeah. His dad. For Yoko. Yoko. For Yoko. Yeah, I'm sure. I want to jump topics for a second here, and I want to talk about what you did with Richie. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> now we met at the Grammy Museum a couple weeks ago. I had literally just flown in the night before from Europe and I was not missing that event come hell uh-huh. or high water. Really? And I had, oh no, yeah. I had had Richie on and he had mentioned, he said, I think I'm going to be in LA and I think we're doing something at the Grammy Museum. But I knew I would be there. I marked my calendar and I set my dates around it. I wanted to get back. I wanted to attend that night where you were touting um, Richie's new album in the country. and. You have an interesting story because I know that as the two of you were deciding to do this, there was really a symbiotic relationship in terms of the songs to choose. Mm-hmm. Well, we had I I started out with a list of three hundred songs. Oh gosh, Richie's list was much smaller when he started, but like he said in the in the interview, we all kind of thought about the older stuff. And it mm-hmm. didn't seem to work in terms of what we were trying to do. When you start going back to Hank Williams and, you know, pe- people of that era, 40s and 50s, even the 60s, um, it, it just stylistically it didn't seem to fit what we were doing. So uh, I had fallen in love with this song years ago when I was in living in Nashville and I was working with Jimmy Bowen, who at the time was president of Capitol Nashville. And he had a guy named Herky Williams running his publishing company, who he was in partnership with Bill, uh, Bill Ham, who's the manager of ZZ Top. And they had a publishing company and they had this kid, um, uh, Jones, Chris Jones is his first name. I can't remember his first name, Jones. And he was a writer signed to Bowen. And Herky and I were trying to get this girl singer signed to Bowen. And so we were going to go make demos and Bone said, I'll give you the money to make the demos, go look for some material. So we're sitting in Herky's office, listening to songs and this kid uh, walks in and says, I just wrote this song. You guys got to hear it and plays it for us. And we went, Oh my God, it's a great song. So I went in and cut it with this girl. And then we gave the demos to Bowen and Bowen said, gee, I man, I, I love the, the girl, but she sounds just like Tanya. And I just, paid a million dollars to extend her contract so i can't sign her and he said but i love that song so he ended up signing john barry about six months later and that was one of the first songs john recorded which is called your love amazes me so that was my first pick on the list of 10 songs and richie's first pick was the same one so when richie saw that he went huh i think this is (laughs) meant to happen and that's what sort of started it. And then we just went on from there, figuring out what we wanted to do. I had my favorites, he had his favorites, and and it kind of all came together that way. And and Michael Miller, my partner, he had some ideas, and Nick Tembrook, who worked on the record with me, he had some ideas, and we just sort of put them all together. seven wonders of the world I've seen the beauty his voice is still impeccable yeah I mean watching him play live at the Grammy Museum can't hide behind anything there they were acoustic it was unbelievable yeah him and an acoustic guitar and another acoustic guitar player 
we wanted to do it that way because once you play those videos, if you don't hire all the guys and singers that we used on those records, it's not going to sound like that. So why would you try to, you know, imitate that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he's got to keep, he's got to keep it going because that voice, I mean, is beautiful. I don't care if he's yeah. what's it, late seventies, early twenties, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, he, when we cut that, he was uh, 75. 75. Yeah. Now, again, I'm going to use this moment to encourage everybody to go check out that album. It's just beautifully done. Beautifully yeah, done. It, so. In the country. Nice on job. B- on BMG. Well, but because this is my rock moment, Val, you know, and we did talk about some amazing moments, but what were some of the moments that made you say, maybe it was the Beatles that made you say, yes, this is it. I want to be a musician or some other moments along the way that you'll never forget. I'll never forget it. It was two in the morning. I was driving home uh, on El Camino Real. I was in San Bruno. I mean, in San Carlos and uh, I want to hold your hand came on the radio and I thought I almost hit three parked cars and that was it over and out right then and there. Their first number one hit in the U.S. Had to be part of it. The way I hear people recount that moment, whether it was hearing them on the radio for the first time, whether it was seeing them on Ed Sullivan, it's almost like lightning struck. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable how strong it was. You know, I I can remember when I was living in Laurel Canyon and uh, Sergeant Pepper came out and we all went down and bought it, went back up in the canyon and sat there for three days listening to it. In amazement. And it's interesting now being able to watch the three-part series that they had on television recently about the Beatles and and that end of their career part when they were doing uh, Let It Be and all that stuff. Um, how over-the-top talented they were. I mean, just stupidly talented. You know, when, when you figure... All the people I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot of great artists, the stuff they were doing is like, I mean, come on, you know. And McCartney, what a driving force. I mean, the guy is an amazing songwriter. He is an amazing songwriter. And the ideas that he had. And how, I mean, you know, Lennon was great. He was the he was the he was the sword. He was the the edge. He was the, you know, the juxtaposition to McCartney. But, you know, in terms of musical composition, McCartney was fucking genius. Funny, I was at the, the Hollywood Bowl last night. I went and saw Cheryl Crow. And it's funny because I went with my lawyer manager, David Helfant. And it's funny because I remember when the pool, they call them the pool seats, or, you know, that are in that curved piece in front of the stage. That was filled with water when the Beatles played there. Wow. And little girls were jumping in it, trying what? to swim to the stage. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's funny because we were talking about that last night. I can see that. Oh yeah. my gosh, how fun. How fun. And how crazy it was when when you went to see them at that show at the Hollywood Bowl. They had a disc jockey, of course, introduced them from Los Angeles. And I don't remember who it was or what the station he was from. But, you know, I remember him holding the microphone saying, and from Liverpool, England. And you didn't hear another thing. You couldn't hear a note. You couldn't hear a note. You couldn't hear a thing for 40 minutes till they walked off the stage because it was so loud. You know, I've read so many stories that they would get to the point where they would literally just start screaming, shut up, shut up. Well, because nobody could hear their music. They couldn't hear it. You couldn't hear a note. Couldn't hear a note in 45 minutes. It was really. uh, Can you imagine coming to see the Beatles and not being able to hear them? (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, it speaks to their, you know, the obsession, but. But anyways, um, Val, I want to wrap it up. I want to ask you a couple last questions just for fun. If you can remember, what was the first concert you saw? Speaking of the Hollywood Bowl and the Beatles. Cow Palace. Uh, And I'm trying to think of the year. 1961, I believe. And it was Bobby Rydell, uh, the Dovells. And the band leader was 17 years old and he was the band leader for the house band on stage and the bass player. And that was uh, Sylvester Stewart, better known as Sly Stone. That's 1961. 1961. At the Cow Palace. Have you ever been to the Cow Palace? Never been. It, you know what? Have you heard of it? Beatles played there. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. But I've never been. It was called the Cow Palace because they used to have the big livestock rodeo show there every year ah there you go and, and that's how it got its name but um but it was this really strange kind of oval shaped it almost looked like a quonset hut kind of building but huge you know wow probably and um that was the first show i ever saw that's a good one do you remember the first album you ever bought um first album hmm no I know it's way back there. (laughs) (laughs) The first album I ever bought with my own money was Rumors, Fleetwood Mac. Great record. Yeah. Yeah. Great record. But that's really, uh, those are really the questions I had, Val. I don't want to take any more of your time. This has been so much fun, though. Oh, great. So where are you now? Where do you live now? Beverly Hills. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. You're in uh, Topanga, right? Yep so gorgeous over there it is honestly one of one of my favorite areas in all of la la county well, you, you'll have to come over sometime you know and I would love see that. the house see the studio see all the gold and platinum you can check it all out you know be careful what you say because i would really love to no no please <laughs> be well, great to have you oh i would love it we'll do it for sure i love that val thank you for the time thank you so much okay can- we walk We smile without any style. We kiss all together on no intention. We lie about each other's strengths. We live without each other thinking what anyone would do without me and you. It's like.
All right, a big thank you to Val Garay for being on My Rock Moment. Hearing his story is remarkable, not just because of his accomplishments, but also because of all the well-known names he encountered the moment he touched down in Los Angeles. And I provided a link to Richie Furey's album with Val Garay, In the Country. It's in the show notes, so please check it out. It really is an impressive album. And as always, guys, please don't forget to subscribe or rate or follow me on Instagram at LA Woman Rocks. Would love to hear from you. That's all for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all at the next episode.